Welcome to an all new banging episode of Tackling a New Kingdom. Now, when I left the show last time, I was your plain old host, Tank Johnson. However, however, I am returning to you all as Terry Johnson, president of Investor Relations and Sports, Sports and Entertainment at, at Outdoorsman Inc. Oh, and CEO of X to Fan. It feels good to be returning as that guy. Today, we're gonna get all into that and this will most definitely set a record for the longest and the best show. Now, our guest today is a major part of me returning to you with all these prestigious titles. This gentleman is my Anglo-Saxon spirit animal, a perpetual free thinker, and an uber successful entrepreneur who, after he made his indelible mark in the tech industry with the likes of Realtor.com, decided to devote his life's work to making others' dreams come true in similar fashion as an investor and venture, capital, venture capitalist. This gentleman is none other than my brother, Ken Tapp. Ken, how are we doing, sir? Thanks. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it is great to have you. Um, on this show, you know, we, you may or may not know, we handle things in three buckets, right? Uh, something current, something real, and finally, something controversial. All right? You okay with that? Oh, yeah. That's you cool? Doesn't scare you off? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Okay, and today in tackling something current, we must talk about all the new and exciting things we have going on at Outdoorsman Inc. and how two very unlikely people connected to form a special, special bond. So first, Outdoorsman, let's educate our listeners on exactly what that platform is. So Outdoorsman uh, and Outdoorsman.com, it's really an, an umbrella company tank that uh, encapsulates really that that uh, you know, small entrepreneur that's out there. You know, we started out uh, meeting up with uh, hunting and fishing and camping and RV uh, retailers, real small ones, usually about 20 employees or smaller. And that, by the way, makes up about 280,000 businesses in the United States alone. And what we found in common with all of these companies is that, uh, you know, they were usually struggling to have enough cash flow to get throughout the year. They were always struggling with new and emerging technologies that could be utilized to make their jobs a little bit easier and, and uh, less expensive. And they just didn't understand how to to truly leverage the internet to do better customer support. Because as you know, if you're a small business operator, keeping your customers happy so they continue to come back and buy products and services from you is, uh, you know, it's your lifeblood. And so there were so many inefficiencies going on with these small business operators that we we really wanted to build a company around supporting them and, and helping them through this journey. As you know, technology changes at such a rapid pace that it's hard to keep up with all of it. And that's that's really our job. And that's what we bring back to these small business operators in the U.S. that focus in the outdoors uh, sports activity uh, sector. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, as I've had a chance to kind of 
take a look at it and, and and look at the landscape of outdoor sports, you know, the first I see is the enthusiasm. You know, I mean, there's so many people. I mean, I've never seen so many pickleball courts in my life, right? <laughs> and there's just so many things that, um, you know, if, if they're brought together, could be super impactful. And I want to, what was it about the outdoor sports industry kind of where, where you, I mean, you kind of explained where you saw that gap that needed to be filled, but was there something like specific that they were just kind of like completely far behind in that you were like, ah, I can fix this? Well, you know, uh, I'll start by informing your your listeners that I came from, you know, the small business uh, tech space with in real estate with Realtor.com. I later, later helped uh, with the technology company that I launched, uh, get Trulia and Zillow up and running. Those are basically three really big uh, real estate technology platforms. And what they all have in common is that realtors and home builders uh, and small business operators in the real estate space are typically wearing so many different hats that they have a really hard time keeping up to date on technology and how that technology can remove some of those those hats from their head. And so as we started to look into, again, the hunting and fishing and and RV space and the racket sports space and youth soccer and so many others, golf, what we were finding is that these small business operators, it also looked like a realtor or a home builder or a title rep or a mortgage broker. And, and so that, you know, we knew how to go out and begin to help these small business operators right off of the bat. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and so on and so forth. Those are platforms that are really great you know, uh, fishing nets for for trying to capture a lot of potential customers, but they are not designed for what all small business operators try to use them for. And so that was our mission is to de to develop and design business models and platforms that really help and embrace these small business operators. Nice. You know, um, you know, I'm always looking at like the why and you see um, you know, I, I look at some of these companies and they service some of the industrial places, the rural places, and and you kind of wonder, like, why are they so far behind technology? Do you think it was just uh, a comfort and a space that they were just comfortable in? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of that. And there was also some fear. You know, I, I think we both know people who are afraid to use certain functions in their computer or their their uh, laptop even their phone, they limit the number of functions that they use in their phone. And yet these are pretty powerful devices and they can really, if understood, be used to make your small business operate much faster. And that that's really where we wanted to focus on right off the bat. We also knew that over the last decade or more, we've seen small business operators uh, really rush to social media to try to, to generate leads and connect with their customers uh, but they didn't they didn't do that with an owner's manual or an instruction booklet as to how uh, to best utilize their time and those platforms to accomplish uh, this part of of their business growth. Now, you look at a large company, let's just call it uh, Amazon or or even uh, your local Best Buy. They have really big tech departments and marketing departments that have uh, you know countless people that know how to navigate these platforms and really leverage them. And, and in the process, what that does is it sort of uh, uh, makes it more difficult for small business operators to really compete in that space. And so uh, 
first and foremost, we wanted to find niche industries that we felt we could be really useful in a really short period of time that were typically communicating even before the internet in kind of these social communities anyway. And then it would be much easier for us to get into those industries and partner up with associations that support those small business operators and help really bring the technology and the ease of use of that technology right to their front door. And so that's, I guess, in a nutshell, how Outdoorsman became what it is today. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I find it fascinating when, when you know, I know there's tons of uh, successful entrepreneurs and, you know, to me, the the space they filled or whatever they figured out, it, it's not overly complex. And, you know, I, I get these deals all the time where I maybe understand 15%, but I can really wrap my brain around like, okay, you have a successful company, there's room for growth. And if you apply this model to it, you will definitely see more success. And so that, you know, just to be able to wrap your mind around it, it seems so simple, but it's so important. So important. And and each year that goes by, it becomes more and more important to include that in their, their core business strategy, because if they are not, I guarantee their competition is. And so it's very difficult to, to you know, uh, many of these companies, as you already know, Tank, they have been around for a long time. Some of them are generational, where they've been passed on from a, a grandfather to a to a son, and then from the dad down to the next son, uh, three generations in some cases. And so if they're not really leveraging technology that is coming out today or tomorrow, then it's setting them that much further behind. And, and uh, this is our mission is to, to go in to and help these companies really navigate that and navigate it uh, in a simple form so that we're not trying to over-educate or over-complicate things for them, make the systems very simple for them to use. Yeah, I mean, like you said, you know, uh, taking some of those hats off of those guys' head, putting it on our heads and uh, making their business model that much more efficient, okay? So let's... Let's talk about some of let's talk about the fun part, right? What are the outdoor sectors that encompass outdoorsman Inc? Well, for starters, we have the hunting and fishing industry and uh, the camping industry, the RV industry. We also have golf, racket sports, which really encompasses everything from like you've mentioned, pickleball all the way to tennis and badminton and so on and so forth. <laughs> uh, and those those, you know, we we're here in the United States, and so we have our favorite racket sports here. And yeah. as you get into other countries around the world, uh, you know, they have different sports that they prefer as it relates to rackets. So uh, big international audience there. Clearly golf is, but golf is a game that is played the same way in, in every country that you go to. And then we are also in uh, the uh, youth soccer space, which is a really exciting area for us right now because we have the World Cup. Uh, coming here to North America in 2026. So a lot of excitement around uh, really embracing that uh, uh, that onset with more technology that's going to help everything from the MLS and FIFA all the way down to those youth soccer leagues. Uh, we also have uh, a racing network primarily focused on off-road racing and motor racing. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I, in fact, grew up uh, a little bit in that that sector. And so I'm, I hold that one kind of close to my heart. I know you do too, when it comes to automobiles yes. and uh, <clears throat> something we have in common there. 
And then we uh, uh, we also have a a boating network uh, for fishing uh, boats, you know, uh, competition and recreational fishing boats uh, primarily. And so uh, I think I caught all of them there. We've got, of course, our our favorite brand new network here, which is X to Fan. And we're always looking uh, in the future to add uh, more niche industries to it. Uh, everything from, of course, baseball to basketball to football and and uh, hockey and so on and so forth. So we'll, we'll hold those close to our chest until those networks get launched. But really excited about the 10 that we have so far. Well, it's that last one, extra fan, that rings special in my ear. And that brings us to tackling something real. Uh, we're going to talk about the origins of X to Fan. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, uh, that last one uh, rang very special in my ears. Uh, and, and with X to Fan, uh, formerly Elite Exchange, you know, and, and since, you know, we've grown our relationship and, and, and I was able to tell you about um, a company that I had that I was passionate about in Elite Exchange. And uh, in, in, in helping out the athletes and entertainers create another uh, revenue stream. What was it that piqued your interest as an entrepreneur about Elite Exchange? Well, you know, for starters, you weren't the first person who who uh, showed that there was an issue or a problem that could be solved here. Um, but certainly the one that had uh, the most, you know, in-depth business solution for it. And I think that that's where I was really excited is to see how much research you had done, how much you had laid out uh, the business model, and that it wasn't something you thought of yesterday. This is, you know, a, a 10 plus year uh, passion project for you. And, and we really felt like this is something that not only does it fit inside of our wheelhouse with being able to go back. Uh, look, everybody is, uh, even if you're just a an athlete, you're a one-person entrepreneur, right? You're you're out there, uh, one-person business, I should say, and you're out there as an entrepreneur, really trying to navigate on your own behalf and your family's behalf uh, the world that you operate in. And this is something that fits perfectly in our mission statement for the company. Mm -hmm. And it's exciting because, <clears throat> in part, we already have so much of the technology that you had laid out in your business model that it just, you know, it, it was more serendipitous than anything else that we had come together. So very excited about Extafan. No, um, you know, one of the things that I had come to realize is um, no one's coming to save us. And we've got these, you know, <laughs> these negative statistics that are all around uh, athletes when they retire, bankruptcy, divorce, and all these things. And you know, I just wanted to have guys be able to take their name, image, and likeness uh, into their own hands and be able to create a market um, surrounded by that, that that pushes all the, the middle men out of the way and gives those guys an opportunity. Um, so talking about this private niche marketplace, I heard you mention that before. How has that started to like change the industry of like online online purchasing and online communities. Tell me about those private marketplaces. Well, you know, for me, when we first saw the onset of Etsy.com as a platform mm -hmm. is a great example. And, and many people 
were only introduced to Etsy years later after it had been, you know, really up and running and and working the way it does today. But in the early years of that, that we were exposed to, uh, that was really just a whole lot of arts and crafts uh, individuals and small small business operators that yeah. were trying to connect using meetups uh, as a way to get together in person and work on their projects. And and also, of course, as you know, how valuable uh, uh, flea markets are or or uh, weekend markets are, this is how they were typically selling their wares. And then, of course, Etsy, uh, early on in the early years, they were going to those physical events and really helping those small business operators get their products online. And, and like I'd mentioned many times in the last few minutes, really hold their hand through the entire process and treat it more like a white glove treatment uh, with how to how to get your products online, how to sell the products online, how to distribute those products online, how to support those uh, products when maybe they they are damaged in transit or uh, something of that nature, right? So the entire ecosystem, if you will, of making something and selling something. And that's not too unlike the way it works in these other niche industries that we've talked about, especially in the hunting and fishing and camping industry. You know, you you have an enormous group of people here in the United States that are under 20 business or 20 uh, personnel in their businesses. Again, about 280,000 plus. That is a lot of businesses. And I don't know if you know this tank, but the inner or the uh, uh, um, a number of uh, what I'm trying to say, I suppose, is the those number of business professionals that are in that group. Very, very few of them get the help from, say, a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shops, a Gander Mountains, or an REI to help. Uh, put those products on their shelves, and then work through that distribution and support cycle. Uh, and so they're left by themselves to figure it out. And as we were looking how at how Etsy had solved this problem, we knew that we could help solve the problem in a similar fashion. And as we got into these different niche industries, uh, it all fell into place. And, and these business operators began to excel with their ability to sell those products, service those products, and then have those repeat customers come back and keep their businesses operating. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you talk about that white glove service and, and you know, one of the things that we've implemented a very new and important wrinkle to the business model. And it's, we say it in our name, exchange to fans, where fans all over the world will be able to connect with their favorite athletes and entertainers and purchase a piece of memorabilia or go shopping in your fave's closet. Um, accessibility has become the new currency of the sports industry. And with everyone clamoring to have that unique and an exclusive item uh, from their favorite celebrities or their favorite athletes, how, how do you think this will interrupt the market for these brokers that charge, that charge fans an absorbent luxury tax to uh, to access the world of athletes and entertainers well it's absolutely going to be disruptive but you know i can just say that not from confidence but from history if you look at how the electronics industry was disrupted first by big box sport uh, big box stores i should say like a best buy and then later with ebay and the onset of amazon uh, it is always disruptive when you start to to get rid of or 
go around that middleman. And I think, unfortunately, you know, in the in the uh, the sports verticals, uh, especially for athletes that have a namesake that they can go out and use uh, to help uh, really brand themselves and anything that they might want to sell or generate revenue from, that 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 middleman has been a, a true juggernaut in the process. And uh, we believe it's time to remove that. And I know that you do too. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, one of the things when I was getting to know you is that, you know, you, you're, you're all about market uh, disruption. And I, I think that's even one of the things in your bio. And uh, if not, you should definitely make sure they put it on your obituary because that's a big part of what you do. Um, why, why is it important to be a disruptor in these markets? You know, like Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, these, these things are disruptors. Why are those things important? Well, I, I think that you could probably look at every .com, every technology, every app that's come out over the last, call it 25, 27 years since really the, the mass adoption of the internet began. And everything has been uh, focused towards putting the power back in the hands of the content creator or that business operator that makes a product or sells a service and and skipping that middleman or sometimes you had a couple different tiers of middlemen in there uh, <laughs> taking their money uh, from small business operators. And so uh, certainly our business model isn't isn't unique, uh, but the disruption that we can find in these different niche industries is really important. And I think it's also important to understand that as you look at our company as a whole, Outdoorsman, we're talking about almost 90, I'm sorry, $900 billion of commerce in that economy, in the outdoor activity economy every year in the United States. You know, that represents pretty close to 2% of our GDP. And that puts us just behind the mining industry and the healthcare industry. Uh, so it's it's obviously a massive industry. It still has quite a bit of, bit of that middleman uh, that needs to be disrupted in the industry so that the the profits and the ease of getting to those profits goes right back to that small business operator. Yeah, uh, well, I'm I'm as excited as I've been in a long time to to be a part of something and just know that you've got a nose guard who, you know, I know a thing or two about disruption <laughs> on your team. So that is tackling something real. And to move on to tackling something controversial, the, the timeline and for the timeline for the launch is a monumental goal for outdoorsmen to go public and all of these great things. And I've got some pushback on how that's gonna work. Can you tell our listeners about what the next 12 to 18 months look like as you try to, as we attempt to take this company public and make it everything it needs to be. Well, sure. I think it's also important to point out that we we started this process over a year ago, and you know I've been in the public markets uh, since we went public in 1990, 1999 uh, with Realtor.com uh, and and uh, Homestore.com, which we went public as and and I really learned that there are so many important steps, especially if you're a private company 
that isn't prepared to go public. In our case, we set out in preparation to be public earlier on. And so we've been able to, to save some time here. But it typically takes two or three years. There's uh, many, many steps along the way in order for a company to successfully get public. And then even if you've gone through all of those steps, it's also incredibly important to time it just right. And we have we look at these down cycles in the market as generally predictable so that when you're coming through those, you're positioning a company to get public right as there's a, and, and during that period, that down market, there's an enormous amount of pent up investment demand by institutional investors, private equity firms and that sort, especially investment bankers, because this is how they make a lot of, of their money is helping companies go public. That demand gets really pent up. As an example, back two, just two years ago, there was over 1,800 companies that had gone public. Last year, there was only 187. And this year, there's predicted to be only 75. So you can imagine that pent-up demand for companies to get public here as we get through the next 12 and 18 months is enormous. So our timing is perfect. In fact, over the last year, and as we get into the next six to nine months, we have set the companies up so that all of this goes very, very smooth. And we're only holding uh, or, or having to wait, I should say, for the timing uh, to jump out of the gates. And you know what timing is all about. When the when the quarterback hikes the ball, you better be right, ready right then uh, yes. to execute the play. And that's what we have done. And that's what we're excited about because as we are in that holding or waiting pattern, we continue to build each one of these companies to be stronger and stronger so that at the time of that public offering, the value or the book value of the company is at its greatest creating the best opportunity for investors who get into the uh, the pre-IPO, but certainly, and even more importantly, those investors or shareholders that come in and buy into the company after the IPO. The last thing you want to do is bring a company to market at the, right, at the wrong time, and then shareholders get stuck with an overvalued or overinflated share price that continues to plummet for, for years to come. That you can avoid, and that's what we've been focused on here for the last year. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we're talking about timing, uh, you know, for me to be able to come around and and us to merge our businesses together uh, as the train was pulling out the station, uh, for me, was just amazing. I just was like, wow, you know, I mean, as, as, as much bad luck as people have in trying to grow businesses, I finally got lucky once, right? <laughs> and 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 it and it felt really really good. So, um I want to get into the weeds a little bit and I I want to know like what experience have you had with IPOs and and specifically working with the SEC as a part of that mechanism. Can can you tell me like just what that experience has been like? Well, I, I did not set out to be an expert <laughs> at this. I'll tell you that much. I yeah, I got into the tech space uh, from grad school about 27, 28 years ago is, is when I decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump in. Uh, and, and like so many others, especially at that time, uh, we abandoned our, our uh, educational career. I was in grad school, and so I bailed out of that and took a job with a startup technology company, which then turned into realtor.com and 
And uh, I was at that very early stage of so many companies going public, especially dot-com companies. And so I became, you know, I went from from learning in the classroom to learning in real life, uh, not just how to build a technology company, but how to get that technology company through an IPO or an acquisition or a merger with a larger company. And I, I enjoyed it so much that I then built a career around funding and helping other small business operators that had great tech ideas go through that same process uh, themselves. And I think, you know, I can I can uh, confidently say that there are some companies out there that are, are very large public companies, Zillow being one of them, that had we not been able to help in those early stages, then they may have been passed up by someone else who would have taken that pole position in, in, in their sectors. And so it's exciting to be a part of an of a of an industry, a tech industry that focuses on trying to get their companies large enough where they can be mass adopted by the whole globe. You know, we had a company that, uh, a couple companies that we merged together that we had started in 2001, we'd sold those companies in 2009. And in the process of doing all of that, that those companies expanded their footprint to the United States and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK being the largest tech platform in the real estate industry behind the scenes. And there's a lot of enjoyment for me when we can bring that kind of technology to industries, even if we're not in the limelight of all of it, but the small operators in those industries are benefiting from it. So going through all of those steps and leading up to, you know, of course, what happened in 2008 and 2009 in the real estate industry with the, the crash, and that that crashed here first. We had a kind of a ripple effect across the rest of the world over the next couple of years. And mm -hmm. we were in the rest of the world. And so we <laughs> felt it much longer, I think, than a lot of companies. It was an enormous learning experience for us. It wasn't fun, but it was incredibly educational and helped us really understand how to navigate the waters when we started this company back in 2013. And we then... Uh, were able to to ride sort of that educational wave with what was happening with blockchain, Bitcoin, eventually the onset of Ethereum, and and different chains and different projects that are out there in the crypto space. Now I know it's received quite a bit of, of kind of bad publicity over the last year or so, yeah. but we look at that as good publicity because the publicity that's coming to the industry right now, in my opinion, is very similar to what we experienced in the dot-com bubble when it burst. You right. know, it's important to point out that dot-com, the dot-com bubble was really a lot of companies that should not have gone public in the first place, that they were over-invested in and propped up to be, you know, the next Sears and Roebuck or General Electric <laughs> or some company that was going to be around for the next hundred years. And there was no way to know that. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Now we come out, we came through all of that. And, and what we learned is your Amazons, which were just penny stocks at the time, and so many other companies were able to grow uh, in a healthy manner. And that's what we're now seeing in the crypto space. We have a washout of companies that were not being operated properly. It's also very important to point out that in the startup space, especially in the startup tech space, it's usually done with young kids, right? 20-year-olds that have amazing ideas and they know how to jump onto a computer and write code faster than anyone else and make certain that it works properly. 
uh, but that doesn't make them business operators. It doesn't give them the experience that seasoned people in the in in Wall Street and in the tech space understand all of those steps yeah. that a company has to go through the the ups and the downs in order to learn how to properly build that business and take the company public or have it available to public investors or shareholders. And that's what you're seeing in the crypto space right now is a real washout. Now, we started working with the SEC. And of course, we're, we have one company that's in the public space already. And so we are constantly in communication with the SEC with that particular company. And so what we learned early on is that the SEC was sort of putting the, the wheels on the car as it was going down the road here. They were trying to catch up to what all of these startup companies were doing over the last decade or so and make certain that they were all doing that correctly. In other words, they were registering their securities correctly. If in a, if a, the company was a securities exchange or if it was some investment vehicle where people could park their Bitcoin or some of their other digital assets, that that was all registered properly with the SEC and with FINRA here in the United States. And if it was a, country, a company that operated in a different country, that it was done properly by their own securities and exchange commissions, right? And yeah. so what we have come out of in the last six months is a real sort of cleaning house of some of these platforms. Uh, you know, you and I talk about this from time to time. FTX is a great example. There were a number of companies in that group that it was helping to support that were not registered properly with the SEC. If they had someone on staff that was older and, and maybe gave them the correct guidance, they could have avoided that altogether. I don't now, think- well, My question is, so is that like registered with the SEC or, or is that like where they're raising their money from? Because what, what, the, what was the fuss about? So it's if you're a company, a startup company, and you want to go and you want to raise capital, uh, you know you've you've brought in a little bit of money from friends and family, but now you want to go out and and bring in investors. The SEC's job and is in, it, incredibly important to educate and show all of the disclosures for investors. And so when you register your offering. What you're doing is you're posting that up with the SEC on their website, and you're saying these are the uh, you know potential problems that we're going to run into as a company. These are all of the disclosures so that your investors have true clarity and access to decide whether the investment is right for them or not. Everyone has a different th sort of threshold for risk in investing. And it's also important to understand where did the SEC come from, right? How, how is it and what did they get here and what is their role? Well, we all know that in 1929, the stock markets crashed here in the United States, which had a reverber reverberating effect across the world. In fact, in part helped start World War uh, II. And when the entire world felt that, there were all kinds of different methods that they were looking at putting in place to prevent it. But it wasn't until 1933 that the United States Congress finally decided to form what eventually in 1934 became the Securities Exchange Commission. And it was designed first and foremost to make sure that any company that was public, and of course, let's fast forward almost 100 years, Crypto companies are public, 
they go out with their tokens, they start selling those publicly to, to shareholders. So any company that was public, whether it was back then on uh, you know stock exchange or most recently in the last decade or so on a crypto exchange, that the shareholders or investors in those companies could actually see every potential problem that that company is going to face as it continues to grow and that it's really clear how much of their investment could potentially be diluted as that company grows and raises more capital by selling more securities. And so I, I simplified it really quick there, but there are countless rules in place that make certain that an issuer, that's a business that goes out and issues their stock or their cryptocurrency or their security tokens, does it in the right fashion first and foremost before they go out and actually start to sell those those digital assets and raise capital. And that's that's where we have had so many companies in the last many, many years not do it the right way. And uh, yeah, I don't think that there was, there were very many companies out there that knew how to do it and intentionally did it the wrong way. Right. I just think, like I mentioned earlier, many of these companies are founded by 20 something year olds and they don't know all of the rules and regulations. They're not is up to date on the history of the SEC as they probably should be. They don't have the guidance, the correct guidance from lawyers and accountants uh, because they're typically doing it themselves until they can raise enough capital to go out and hire those lawyers and those accountants. Yeah. And so it just wasn't being done right. Yeah, well, as a father of two 20-year-olds, <laughs> I, I can say they need guardrails. <laughs> but- yeah. Um, no, man, I, I'll, I'll say a couple things is that um, I've been particularly fascinated um, watching how you uh, lay the groundwork for all of our companies and all of our businesses. And although I know that I want to go, 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 and let's go and do this, let's go save the world. If you're not on solid ground, you're going to be out there and you're, it's not going to be good. And so um, in, in the time that I've worked with you, I've grown a appreciation, particularly of the foundation of businesses and, and the ability to take them the correct way. And another thing you said that really resonated with me was it feels the same as the dot-com era, when all of the dot-com companies were coming out and no one thought they were going to be this and everyone thought they were going to be that. You, you saw how that played out. And so when you're looking at crypto and you're looking at NFTs, you don't have to panic as much as the, the public at large because you've seen it. And that, to me, uh, has been an education. And I know I'm definitely become smarter as a, result, as a result of our relationship. And I hope that we can just educate our listeners on some of these complex topics. Yeah, I think it's also important to point out that, um, you know, the stock market has generally been controlled uh, behind the scenes by the same players, companies, banks, uh, market makers, all of these folks that make certain that the uh, the stock market works properly on a Do daily. Do you think that's fair? You know, I, I, I don't, I, I think it's important. I think it's very important to have uh, stability and stability comes from from having the same companies do the same thing over and over and over. Uh, the stock market globally, all of the markets have 
uh, certainly the ability for some types of manipulation. But I think that you can also look at that from a potential positive point, which means that, and we, I think we know this in general as it relates to, uh, you know, judicial systems and law enforcement globally. And, you know, they might not all be operating with the same good intentions all of the time, but without those guardrails, without those groups and those companies in place or organizations, things could be much worse. And so I look at the stock market, you know, we are the gold standard globally, our stock market here in the United States, we're, we're the gold standard. Now, that doesn't mean that we're squeaky clean and every single investment banker or broker or whatnot out there operates within those, those rule sets, but enough of them do that they keep everything on the correct straight and narrow and give a lot of confidence to investors that they can invest in something and know uh, that somebody or some organization has their back, not too unlike when you, you know, deposit your money at your bank and, you know, if you walk out of the bank and somebody walks into the bank right after you and robs the bank, that your money is still secure, that it's insured. And that's really what we look at the stock market players as is the insurance policy to make sure that the system works. That now needs to translate into the crypto markets. And that is what has been happening now for the last year, a little more than a year, uh, with Gary Gensler as the chairman of the SEC, who came to the SEC uh, as an educator of the crypto and blockchain space and truly understood it, and also understood where his predecessors did not get in uh, with the right rule set early on to help prevent some of these companies like the FTX from going down a path that wasn't the correct one. Right. Uh, and so that I think what now I say, I say that because I think now, as you look into the next year and, and beyond, you're going to see the crypto markets treated and as safe as a place as the stock market is today. Uh, case in point is that prior to COVID, when of course we know there was a two-year period there where lots of people uh, were sitting at home and maybe they were getting checks from from their governments, not just here in the U.S. but globally, and they were taking that money and and instead of putting you know food on the table and paying their their rents or their mortgages, they were gambling that or or betting on making more from leveraging. it. Leveraging, leveraging. <laughs> there you go in the crypto markets and. Uh, I don't have an opinion on on that process, except to say that that was an enormous amount of money that entered the crypto markets. And at the same time, it also got into the stock market. You had the onset of Robinhood, which allowed you to have fractional ownership of stocks and bonds and such. So you could get into uh, the stock market and the crypto markets with relative ease. You now had money in your bank account to do so. And you had all of these people in the United States alone, we had over 40 million people. I apologize. I believe it was 30 million people enter the stock market for the very first time during COVID. Well, you can imagine that before they did that, they probably were not educating themselves as investors to understand how to look at the companies they were betting on and, and you know, really vetting them. Instead, they were just following the trends of everyone else as they were buying into certain ideas or investments. Well, the SEC now understands that that, that's called a retailer shareholder base. A retailer shareholder is someone 
who is not a registered broker or they're not uh, filed with FINRA as an investment bank or private equity group or what we call a sophisticated investor. And so they don't have all of that knowledge that a sophisticated investor has. And so they tend to just follow trends. Well, that's okay. That's the way the markets have worked for the last 100 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. But it's important that the next 100 years as the stock market and the blockchain begin to merge together because it's a the blockchain is a far more efficient technology platform for the stock market than what it currently uses. And by the way, it's only been currently using that platform for about 20 plus years now because prior to that, if you remember, if you wanted to buy and sell stocks, you had people out on a trading floor with a little ticket in hand and one was saying, I want to buy and I want to sell and that all of that. And of course, now it's all done with computers and it's on on uh, the internet. And that's all going to to rapidly adjust and move over into the blockchain space as a far better way to track the transfer of any of these digital assets. So so a long-winded answer, but I also try to educate people along the way so that they understand that uh, it's not as magical behind the scenes. There's a lot of hardware and software. There are old ways of doing things and there are new ways of doing things. And the blockchain is the new way of the stock market operating in the near future. Yeah, I mean, as we you know, as you know, and you know, our, my listeners know, uh, I work very close uh, in step with the National Football League, Commissioner Goodell, uh, NFL Security, and um, I, I've been behind the scenes in that space for longer than I was a player now, and I, I help create a lot of the resources. And and one of the things that I was I was telling you is kind of like what the messaging is from the NFL, the NBA, and Hollywood. It's absolutely positively do not mess with crypto, NFT, uh, any of that stuff. And so I guess my thing is, what would your message be to them um, about that? Well, uh, first and foremost, it's a, you have to understand that. Uh, anytime there's a problem with anything, the reaction is don't do that until we get it figured out. Sure. And that figuring out process is in place with the SEC right now. In fact, I, I would suggest that any of your listeners who want to learn more and more about what's going on with the SEC and with the crypto and blockchain space, uh, they can... Uh, We'll we'll put some links up so that uh, they can go and watch some videos directly from Gary Gensler from the SEC explaining different parts of the crypto market. And one of them, which you're mentioning, is the promotion of cryptocurrency or some crypto company or blockchain-related company. And it's important to know what the rules are if you're a celebrity and you've got an audience that you're out promoting something to, whether it's, hey, you should wear these new pair of sneakers or, hey, you should invest in this particular company, that they too must register with the SEC as a promoter of those sort of things. And so that's that can sometimes be a complex uh, thing to do. You you typically need a little bit of help or handholding to get it done. Sure. And, uh, and as soon as you get it done, then it's very easy for you to go out there and do some promotion. But, but does, does that absolve you from liability? Yeah, exactly. So again, the SEC's uh, job is to make certain that there's transparency and clarity for investors to understand what they're investing in. 
And unfortunately, with these 30 million plus new investors that came into the stock market and the crypto markets in the last couple of years, many of them would just listen to, you know, a, a celebrity who said, yeah, you should go and, and create an account on this platform, or you should go and invest in this particular currency or what have you. And uh, that particular promoter is what they're called, did not register themselves properly with the SEC to be able to go out and do that. And so because that process isn't just something like going to a website and filling out a bunch of quick information for Tank to be able to go and do that, and instead it needs to be filed properly, I think that most of the powers that be, and you mentioned the NFL saying, hey, just stay away from it altogether, is just kind of a quick whitewash to say, well, don't do this until we figure out an easy way for you to be able to do it the right way so that you don't find yourself in some sort of trouble with a particular company. And so that education process is now going to start coming out here pretty soon. Uh, I'll add that the SEC at the beginning of this year put out uh, some uh, new rule sets that they're waiting to get feedback from, uh, from you know the investment banks and, and Wall Street in general, so that these new rules can give correct guidance to both promoters as well as uh, brokers, uh, wealth managers, people who could potentially be that middleman for you to go out and buy that Bitcoin or trade those cryptocurrencies for you. And as soon as those, those rules are finalized, which we believe is in the coming weeks and months, then you're going to start seeing commercials online from everyone from Wells Fargo to Chase Bank to EF Hutton and, and everyone else saying, okay, now the rules are here. Come to us. Come to a real professional. Don't try to do this on your own because you could potentially invest in a company, uh, whether you were told to do so by a celebrity or whether you saw a commercial or what have you, and you invest in the wrong type of company. And so this is shifting really fast. And we're excited because we're at the very forefront of all of this. And that's in part because of how much knowledge we've been able to gain with the SEC over the last year and a half. Wow. Yeah. SEC sounds like a real Debbie Downer. <laughs> They're like the adult in the room, right? <laughs> they they are, but we needed that. You know, we had the the, the stock market crash in 1929. And, and uh, you know, at the, the worst time of our recession, which was in 1933, where we had the highest unemployment, we had the most people who were in food uh, food lines and so on and so forth. Congress finally came up with a a, uh, a commission, the rules, and then a commission that could go into place to really help small investors. Because look, the United States is, is a, an amazing country to live in. You can start your own business, you can invest in, in someone else who started their own business, and you can rest assured that that company is is operating by some rules and guidelines, and that's what the SEC has been able to bring to us. And if we did not have that in place, there is no way that we would be the gold standard of the stock market globally here in, in 2023. Uh, we would have been taken over by some other country a long time ago. And it's a, a real critical linchpin in not just capitalism, but I think uh, you know, a country that really promotes democracy around the world. And so you've got to have those organizations, those Debbie Downers sometimes yeah. in place to make certain that everyone can be rest assured that what they're doing is being done by the books and has already been vetted by an, uh, an organization like the SEC. 
Well, again, as the parent of two 20-year-olds, I know the importance of being a Debbie Downer. <laughs> <You can't, laughs> yeah. Somebody's got to get in there and talk with some sense. And so uh, that was tackling something controversial. And boy, is it controversial and is it real? And we're going to get you out of here on a quick rapid fire. And we're going to see just how good you are. How old were you? Oh, I'll wait for you drink. How old were you when you made your first million dollars? I was uh, 29 years old. Uh, and what? Uh, well, that was that had to do with Realtor.com. Why is it important to develop a digital currency? It, because it's traceable, right? So there's transparency with digital currency. Okay. I got $10 million or 10 million something. If I could give it to you in gold, dollars, or digital coins, which would you take and why? Oh, I'd take digital currency because the, the long-term effect of digital currency's value increasing is for us the same as technology entering uh, or the internet coming out and technology entering this platform called the internet. I believe that digital currency and digital assets is the future because it gives back to those creators and those small business operators and even the large ones uh, custodian over exactly what that digital currency or or digital asset is doing, and so I think I think I think that has greater long term value, and I also believe that gold and silver and 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 things like that uh, are are often overvalued based on what's actually available in the marketplace. They've been for a long time until the late '60s, um, an actual uh, uh, tangible asset that backs fiat currency and company and countries. Excuse me, but since then, since that decoupling that took place back at the late 60s, early 70s, uh, it's it's really more of just a definition, and it doesn't really translate to true value. Uh, and I know I'm not alone in that that interpretation. And and if I uh, uh, well, for for instance, the blockchain exists because I'm not alone with that interpretation. It was the reason blockchain became. And it is the reason why Bitcoin became, and it is the reason why countries around the world, especially second and third world countries, look at digital currencies as a far safer place for them to transact than their fiat currency, especially in those second and third world countries that are run by dictators. Wow. Three words that come to your mind with your new president of sports and entertainment, Tank Johnson. Uh, excitement, uh, knowledge, and uh, uh, man, just the, the willingness to keep going and and uh, not work, uh, uh, not let things work you up. You know, you just uh, I think it's uh, it's your professional athlete personality that makes you such a winner, and that's exciting to have you on board with us. Well, brother Ken, you have came, you have saw, and you have tackled a new kingdom. Thank you for being a guest on my show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.